Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College. He is the author of The Triumph of the Modern Self. We talk about the modern self, how people identify themselves, and how this is very different from the past. Dr. Truman also tells us how politics has changed significantly as a result. Dr. Carl Truman, how's everything going? It's going well. And what about yourself, Jimmy? <laughs> it's going very well. I know you're out on the East Coast and, you know, it's been a couple of years, but how's everything been for you since, I guess, the pandemic and everything else? Well, I live in Western Pennsylvania, which is, it's interesting territory politically. It's, it's very strong mm. sort of Trump land. And uh, the pandemic didn't have quite the same impact, I think, in uh, Western Pennsylvania, which is really the upper reaches of Appalachia than it probably had in, say, San Francisco or New York. So mm. life almost continued for nor uh, as normal for us during the pandemic. Not quite, but almost. Almost. Wow. Yeah. That's good to hear because at least for people in New York, San Francisco, even here in Austin, it was, you know, it was quite crazy. And especially with all of the stuff that went on, which we'll uh, talk about that, you know, it was just kind of, uh, you know, I, I couldn't believe the times that we were living in. Oh, yeah. it, it just felt like the apocalypse in some ways. <laughs> yes, they were very strange. But uh, I found particularly the amazing rush on toilet paper right at the start was kind of disturbing. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And that was one of the weirdest sort of like economic sort of panics that, that people had. They they didn't care to store, you know, money or something like that. <laughs> they they went and stored toilet paper of all things and frozen pizza. Yes. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I wanted to have you on the show because I read your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and it was absolutely fantastic. But before we get to that, could you describe for my audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a professor at Grove City College which is a liberal arts college about 50 miles north of Pittsburgh in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department, but I do most of my teaching actually on the humanities core. Uh, my real passion is, it's sort of, I suppose, Western life and thought and literature. Those are the mm. things that I most love teaching uh, the students in, in, in Grove. So that's what I do for a living. And in my spare time, I ride my bike and I'm learning to play the bluegrass banjo. So I'm trying to fit into Western Pennsylvania as best as I can. And where are you from originally? Oh. Where, where's that accent from? Oh, well, it's uh, Camden, New Jersey. That's where I grew up as a kid. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm from the United <laughs> Kingdom, specifically from England. Uh, I grew mm. up in the West Country over in Gloucestershire near a town called mm. Stroud. Mm. And I uh, married actually to uh, a woman from the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. So by mm. British standards, we're a mixed race marriage. We're an English, Sc an Anglo-Scottish <laughs> marriage. Lived in the United States since 2001. We emigrated mm. uh, in 2001. So I've been here for 21 years. Not quite half my life, but certainly over a third of my life has been lived in the United mm. States. Mm. And you still have the accent, which is very charming. By I'm way. glad to hear that because I was I was home recently and a taxi driver implied that I sounded slightly American and I was mortally offended. And my wife <laughs> was absolutely delighted and has been rubbing in ever since. So now I can tell her, no, uh, I've, I've kept my accent. I have Jimmy's song uh, to, to vouch for that. <laughs> I imagine she has like a Scottish accent. That, that That's probably a little more distinct than maybe an English one. She does have a, a 
um, particularly a Western Isles accent, which is often mistaken for a Southern Irish accent. It, it's quite distinctive mm. among Scottish mm. accents. So. Mm. Indeed. All right. Well, so accents aside, so let's get to the book because for me, reading the book and sort of, you know, your explanation and depth and history that you went into to explain this very motivating question that you put at the beginning of the book, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And why does that make sense? Was for me absolutely brilliant. And it, it explains so many things that I didn't really understand before. Could you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book and you know what you hope to do by writing? Sure. A number of factors played into it. Uh, one is a sort of negative one. I'm, I'm actually a Reformation academic by training. 16th, 17th century Reformation is my my academic background. And I'd been teaching that for 25 years and was just getting a little bored with saying the same thing over and over again. So I was looking for another project. At the time, I was also working part-time as a pastor of a local church. And one of the things that I was struck uh, by as a pastor was how people in the younger generation thought very differently about things like sex and gender to people of my generation. So I was interested that a significant shift uh, on matters such as that had, had taken place in the last 15, 20 years. Thirdly, I, I became interested in, it, particularly in that statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, which flies in the face of, of pretty much everything that was thought about being a man and woman up until, you know, one could say facetiously, the day before yesterday. How <laughs> rapidly that had become a statement that that made sense and didn't just make sense to people who you know, had sat in gender theory seminars at universities, but it was starting to make sense to ordinary people walking around town. You ask somebody, what is a man? What is a woman? Suddenly you're starting to get confused answers coming back. So I was interested in what social and cultural conditions must have come into play in order for that sentence, not simply to make sense to sophisticated philosophers such as Judith Butler, the, the great gender theorist, but to the ordinary man or woman in the street. And it was really in trying to explore that that, that triggered the, the book. Hmm. Well, I really appreciate that you wrote that. And, you know, in your introduction, you say that there's a focus on inwardness or an inner psychological life as a, a sort of decisive for identity. What is it about modern day that causes us to sort of try to define ourselves rather than sort of like what might normally identify us, uh, like, say, you know, what we look like or what job we do or something like that. Yeah. Well, when you think about you think about the way the world has changed really over the last 500 years, but the change has accelerated, I would say, over the last 20, 25 years. The way the world has changed is that a lot of the things that were once fixed and would have provided solid and fixed points of identity have become very fluid. Take, if we were to go back, I mentioned I grew up in the West Country of England. If we were to go back to Gloucestershire in, say, my home county, in, let's say the year 1300, pretty much everything's fixed. Uh, I'm going to be mm -hmm. born, live, and die probably in the same village. I'm certainly not I'm very unlikely to ever wander more than about 40 miles away from that village. My world would be very small, very fixed. I don't have a choice of job 
because, hey, my parents were peasant farmers. That means I'm going to be a peasant farmer. The people who are my friends, they're people that I grew up with. They don't move very far either. Mm. The political world doesn't change. Hey, there's a king. There are barons. Uh, these are hereditary positions. I have no say over them. The world doesn't change much. And, and you could get a, something of a grasp of this. So I say, you know, if we were able to travel back in time to 1300, spend a few weeks there, and then jump forward to, say, the year 1400, there'd be very little that would have changed. The world was very, we might say, solid, secure, something that we could locate ourselves in with significant confidence. When you think of today, the world we live in is very fluid. The things that would typically have given human beings a sense of stability or, an, or identity have become very fluid. Most of us now make a lot of choices in our lives that we would never have had to make before. And I, I always remind students, you know, freedom's great, but freedom also brings huge burdens and responsibilities. If you have to choose your career, you're going to worry about what career you choose in a way that the 14th century peasant uh, would never have done so. Think about family. When I was growing up, it, it didn't really matter to some extent what happened at school because when I returned home at night, hey, my mum and dad stayed together. Uh, the family was always solid. I knew who I was because I knew who my mum and dad were and I knew what relationship they had and there was a solid institution there. Think of how family today is very, very fluid. Uh, more and more children grow up in homes where perhaps they've never met one of their parents or their parents have broken up and new parents have been added to the mix. How that affects a child's sense of identity. So I would say the big change over the last few centuries has been the slow but steady crumbling of secure, external, authoritative, stable points of identity that have actually been replaced by things that are typically rather more volatile and fluid. Uh, even comes down to architecture. Right? The village, the town I grew up in, uh, the bank in the town I grew up in in Gloucestershire uh, was a giant sandstone structure that looked a bit like the Parthenon in Athens. And it mm -hmm. sent a certain message. It, the message it sent was, I was here long before you were born. I'll be here long after you've died. You can give me your money and that's okay. I'm not a fly-by-night. <laughs> My bank in Philadelphia when I lived there, I think it was made out of cardboard. And the message it said, well, you know, <laughs> I arrived last Tuesday. Maybe I'll be here next Thursday. Maybe not. The, mm. Those architectural markers that allow us to know the place where we live and the institutions that define our place, they too have become very equivocal. So it's a long and complicated story, but I think it really comes down to the fluidity and the volatility of the world in which we now live leads to a fluidity and a volatility of identity. And we still want to know who we are. We're just thrashing around to find footholds and handholds that allow us to know who we are. Hmm. Except they're all slippery or not stable or mm. something like that, in which case uh, we have to kind of define things for ourselves. One thing that you said in your answer that that's really interesting to me is that the social mobility of the peasant from the 14th century or something like that was not very much. You pretty much stayed within a very small window of status that you can do. I mean, obviously, if you're a merchant or something, you do well. Maybe you can move up a little, maybe down a little, depending on who you married and so on. But 
you know, in the modern day, there's almost a very different status hierarchy. And it's, uh, you know, you describe it very well in the book. It's, uh, you know, almost like a victimology Olympics or something like that. <laughs> the cross section of, uh, of whatever victim class you belong to. How does the status hierarchy or the fluidity of that affect identity? Because at least from my perspective, what, what I've seen is that people want to identify themselves into a higher status, you know, within society, something like that. What's your perspective on the relationship between status and identity? Yeah, I think that's a very good, good question. And here I, in the book, I borrow a concept from the, the German philosopher Hegel, who talks about he's this notion of recognition and recognition is really, we might say it's my status, my feeling about myself is really to a large extent dependent upon how other people respond to me, uh, whether they treat me with respect or contempt, for example, will shape how I feel about myself. And societies have codes and frameworks by which uh, respect and contempt is uh, is parceled out, is, is structured, is, is definable. And I think where we live today, you, you, you talked about, I think, the Olympics of victimology there. It's a, mm-hmm. sort of a radical, sort of, it's a sort of shocking phrase, but I think it captures mm-hmm. uh, what's going on. In today's society, uh, it's not so much uh, the place you're born, the, the, the rank into which you're born, but whether one is able to claim some kind of suffering or some kind of victimization that automatically within the sort of the moral framework of the society within which we operate grants one a kind of kudos or a sort of status. Mm. It's often fascinated me why Hollywood stars need to feel the need sometimes to come out and tell people they were abused or neglected as children. There's a sense in which clearly they've overcome that because they've become incredibly successful and yet they still feel the need to tell people about it. Now, that it might be a therapeutic need. It might be helpful to them to tell people about it. But I also think there's a certain status that comes with it as well, because they know we live in a world where victimhood uh, carries kudos. Uh, victimhood grants a certain authority and credibility. And as human beings, we like having authority. We like having credibility. We like other people respecting us. And if Claiming victimhood is one way of garnering respect from someone, then that's the kind of thing that, that we, will, we will make public, we will engage in. So it's a good question. I think it comes down to the terms of recognition. Another question might be, of course, why has victimhood come to, mm-hmm. to have such status? And then I think you get into a very interesting, you know, the history of the 20th century has been a history where human beings have not only inflicted more suffering than ever on other human beings, but we've also become acutely aware of how much suffering we impose upon other human beings. And I think that's brought to the surface a sense that we should be more sensitive to suffering and to victimhood than we have in the past. So things that that, that in the past might have granted one credibility and respect, social status, have been marginalized in favor of, of new values that have come through in order to, to empower those that we previously regarded as, as disempowered. And this brings up a concept that I found very helpful as a way to sort of frame this change in societal attitudes. And you, you called it the social imaginary, yeah. right? Like how people think about the world and 
or at least what they imagine other people to respect or something like that. And that is a huge motivating factor for why people claim victimhood and so on, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the social imaginary is it's a, a term used by Charles Taylor. It's a slightly awkward term because we typically think of imaginary as an adjective and he's using it as a noun. <laughs> but what he means by the social imaginary is really that the way we the way we relate to the world almost all of the time is intuitively. Uh, we don't think in terms of arguments and first principles. We tend to operate more in terms of intuitions. And you can understand this from a common sense level in, in your own life. When you think about you grow up, you regard certain things as right and certain things as wrong. Uh, where do you, you get your ideas of right and wrong, the specifics from? Well, quite often it's because our parents taught us these things. And we never read Immanuel Kant on ethical and moral imperatives. We've never engaged in deep study of John Stuart Mill or Alistair McIntyre or these you know, ethical moral thinkers. We tend to be moral by intuition. Uh, we tend, you know, why stealing wrong? Well, bottom line is my mum taught me it was wrong to take somebody else's property. Uh, and that sort of sticks with you as an intuition. And it opens up the way for, for realizing the way we're shaped is not by books and arguments so much as it is by stories. In our modern world, that would be television, movies, soap operas, sitcoms, perhaps for the rising generation uh, more and more. It's the internet, it's TikTok, it's YouTube. It's the mm. stories we see there that shape uh, how we think about the world. And when you track that back to victimhood, a lot of those stories are often predicated on, on the notion of showing that the victim is, is virtuous, showing that the victim is somebody who needs to be loved and cared for and even respected precisely because of their victimhood. And what we've seen in many movies and, and dramas, for example, is uh, the disappearance of the old notions of right or, and wrong being replaced by notions of sympathy and empathy. Does this character doing this thing call forth our sympathy because they've been marginalized or victimized in some way? Uh, and that, I think, shapes so that the social imaginary is a very useful concept for understanding that you know, victimhood has not taken center stage in modern notions of recognition because somebody's made an argument. It's because, you know, for example, we've seen pictures of kids behind barbed wire at death camps in, in the Holocaust because we switch on our televisions and we see heartbreaking stories about uh, children who've been abandoned or have died because they've taken drugs that parents uh, left around. We see pictures of refugee children lining up at the border. These things pull on the heartstrings and really help cultivate uh, a sympathy for victims. And in saying this, I, I don't want to be sound callous and say, you know, this is wrong. It's just an emotion. No, emotions are very important in the way we think ethically. I'm merely trying to describe and explain why our emotions have been tilted in a certain direction over recent decades. And that's something that I've noticed is that, especially with news stories and, you know, the YouTube videos or TikTok or whatever, the way in which stories are chosen almost seem like they're you know, servicing some agenda. So, the uh, you know, if you watch any Hollywood movie, the gay character is almost always very sympathetic. Yeah. They 
almost never, you know, portray them as evil in any way or any way and so on. How do you see that playing into sort of like, I don't know, the people in power sort of manipulating us or something like that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Of course, I'm sympathetic to seeing it as, as manipulative. But on the other hand, I don't want to go down the route of thinking that everybody watching these things just blindly accepts what they see. Uh, mm. But I do think there is a definite agenda to present certain groups in certain ways. I, I, did, uh, I had a student last semester who did a fascinating paper for me in the Capstone Humanities course on Hollywood movies where parents apologize to their children <laughs> as opposed to vice versa. And it was fascinating that mm. she, she made the number of children's apologies to parents in movies as opposed to parents' apologies in children. The, the proportion isn't even close. The movies mm. now routinely portray parents as problematic people who need to apologize to their kids for doing something wrong. Well, that's a very interesting way of projecting a vision of parenthood onto people mm. who are watching the movie. And it's not coincidental uh, that, that that's being done. I, I think that that the people making movies are definitely by and large committed to what we would call progressive values by and large committed towards not so much presenting the world as it is, but presenting the world in a way that they think will draw it to what it should be. So there's definitely a line of that. And when you think even, I mean, a very controversial issue, of course, with the, the recent Supreme Court decision in Dobbs that has effectively overturned Roe v. Wade, it's very interesting to me how the pro-abortion rhetoric pivoted very quickly to the issues of rape and incest uh, in the <laughs> aftermath of that, which we all know are, are, refer to a minuscule number of the abortions that are actually performed in America. But it's a, it was an interesting pivot because, of course, that is a very, very, th those are very emotional stories. They really pull at the heartstrings. They, they draw you away from talking about personhood in in, in, in perhaps somewhat abstract terms and bring the human interest in. So again, it points to the power of stories over argument, I think, to shape uh, the way we think uh, in terms of moral argumentation. Hmm. Well, I found interesting what you were saying about the parents apologizing to kids, because uh, you point out in your book how much Rousseau has uh, you know, influenced modern thinking. And how he sort of saw almost like children as innocent and like sort of perfect and that society corrupts them. And, you know, it's not that that's in opposition to sort of the traditional view where, you know, children needed to be taught morally to yeah. have the right emotions towards the, you know, the good and the beautiful and, and, and things like that. Is that an expression of sort of like Rousseauian ethic? Yes, I, I think Rousseau, uh, he, he's not the only person making those kind of arguments in the 18th century, but he is perhaps the most articulate and influential. It comes down to, do you think individuals, are they screwed up by society? Are they screwed up by society's institutions? Now, most of us would want to say, you know, somebody's environment and background does make a big difference. I was very privileged, I guess, to grow up with parents who stayed together. It was a loving home. It was not a particularly wealthy home, but it was a loving and supportive home. Mm -hmm. I had a much better start in life than a kid growing up 
in a, a single parent family in the streets of Philadelphia where dad's in prison, drugs and guns are an everyday fact of life on the street. There's no doubt that if you grow up in that environment, it's you face challenges that are that a kid that I fa- that I did not face when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I think Rousseau captures something of the truth. The question mm-hmm. is, the danger is always when you capture a partial truth and you make it the whole truth, it tends to become a falsehood at that point. And the problem, I think, with Rousseau is, I think, yes, what, you, what you're pointing to there is a cultural example of a long polemic against what we call the traditional family that has preoccupied leading cultural figures for several hundred years now. And it is predicated on the idea that the traditional family is not a natural thing. It is an Mm. unnatural perversion of nature that will ultimately pervert those who grow up within that context. So yeah, it's a Rousseau. It's certainly consonant with a Rousseauian view of the world. Mm. And I, I love what you say about, you know, relating that to the social imaginary and so on. It's that our intuitions are shaped by, you know, by these assumptions that whose intellectual origins and metaphysical assumptions that we don't even know where they come yeah. from. And yeah. they're, they're just sort of there. And we absorb them as part of, you know, living in society. And it's almost like seeped into us. Can we talk a little bit about how it is that we absorb these things? I guess it's partly through stories, but why is it that we just sort of automatically think them as true? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. One of the reasons why in the book I focus, certainly in the middle part, on thinkers like Mm -hmm. Rousseau, like the Romantics, like Nietzsche, like Freud, is I think it's sometimes helpful to understand the implications of our intuitions by looking Mm -hmm. at people who have thought very self-consciously about these things so we can see what the implications are and if you were to look at it you would say i would say you know one of the the man who most captures many of the intuitions of the modern age most wonderfully in terms of his philosophy it's friedrich nietzsche Mm. not many people have read nietzsche but at the heart of, of nietzsche's thinking is is the idea is that the world is just stuff the world has no intrinsic meaning or structure it's just stuff And it's up to me as an individual to create my own meaning out of that stuff. It's up to me as an individual to perform myself, to create myself through performance. Now, you might say, well, very few people have read Nietzsche. Why is it that so many people seem to, that seems to capture so much of what's going on in the world today? Well, I would say one obvious thing would be technology. Uh, Think about what technology has done. Technology, in some ways, has made all the world a stage. If Nietzsche was all about self-invention and self-creation, well, anybody can do that in the era of social media. Anybody can have a TikTok account or a Twitter account or a Facebook page where they can be whoever they want to be. They can invent, they can reinvent themselves as many times as they wish. We have technology. And one of the things about technology is I think people often think about technology as it allows us to do the same things only faster and more efficiently. It doesn't. It actually changes the way we relate to the world. Think about the automobile. The automobile completely transforms how people think about space and time. That 
peasant that I said, I was describing earlier on, I said he likely would is, he would never go more than 40 miles beyond the house where he was born in his entire lifetime. I don't know when I did my first 40 mile journey, but I bet it was before I was six months old. I bet my parents put me in the car mm -hmm. and drove me to the seaside or something for their holiday. And I'd already traveled more by the time I was six months in terms of raw distance from home than anybody or most people would have done in the 14th century. My life is very different. It's not simply the same life, only faster and cleaner than a 14th century peasant. It's a fundamentally different one. Space and time mean something different. Same with the, the internet. The internet allows me to shrug off even more radically traditional forms of authority over my identity and allows me to reimagine the world in ways that would have been unthinkable even 30 or 40 years ago. So it's only a partial answer to the question of how does this stuff go mainstream? The technological world makes it plausible and brings it into the mainstream. Well, I guess the argument you're making is that because we see so many things changing, we, we just sort of have a looser grip on reality or something, or think that with enough technology, you can change reality for your own benefit or towards whatever it is that you want. Yes. I mean, I think when you, when you mm -hmm. say a looser grip on reality, you're sort of assuming that there is a reality. <laughs> and I think that that's kind of an mm -hmm. assumption now that, that might mm -hmm. be controversial in, mm -hmm. in many circles that, well, my reality is whatever I mm -hmm. care to make it. Uh, you know, the metaverse is fascinating <laughs> on this front. Uh, does the metaverse loosen our grip on reality? Or does it create an alternative mm. reality? So, yes, I, I think you, I mean, I would agree with you. I think there is a reality and it does bite mm. back. And when it bites back, we, we feel this terrible impotence and lack of control because we used to everything obeying our wills mm. these days. But nine days out of 10, 99 moments out of 100, we feel that we're able to create our own reality. We're able to perform. We're able to be whoever we want to be. Yeah, this attitude, I see a parallel at least with, with economics and how, how they treat money, right? Like they, the entire idea of fiat money is that you can sort of create value out of nothing. And yeah. of course, that results in inflation. And it, it, it has all these side effects that you don't necessarily anticipate. And it creates all sorts of chaos and people feel very, you know, kind of unmoored or unstable when, when those kinds of things inevitably happen. And for me, that's like the lesson of economics the last hundred years or so is this, you know, there is an economic reality that if you don't adhere to or ignore, it will come and bite you back. And it's a little bit stranger because it's not... Like, you know, a man saying he's a woman and then being surprised can't get pregnant or something like that. It's very much, you know, laws of economics, which feel like we, you can do something about, but really can't. And in that way, there's even a deeper metaphysical reality there that, that we're not acknowledging. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating point. My son is an economist. Mm -hmm. I am not. So I... <laughs> 
I can't comment on that, but I think you make a great point. And we saw this a somewhat in the pandemic mm -hmm. in, in terms of suddenly we're faced with our own mortality. Mm. And what we've done, of course, over the last hundred years is we've shunted death to the margins. Again, my, my peasant ancestor in 1300 would probably have walked past the graves of his own ancestors, maybe his siblings, mm. possibly tragically even his own children, as he was going to church on a Sunday or as he was going to work in the fields, death would have been very present, and very real. Mm. We have pushed death into hospices and hospitals. Mm. We don't have graveyards particularly visible at the centers of our community anymore. We tended on the whole to try to push death away. Suddenly in the pandemic, certainly in the early weeks of the pandemic, we have no idea what's going on. How many people are going to die? Where is this thing going to spring up next? And we don't know what to do. <laughs> the only thing to do is lockdowns and control and plow all our resources into vaccines, etc. And this is not, I'm not here saying that none of those, I'm not saying those things were bad things at all, mm -hmm. but I'm saying it, it's fascinating that the only answer we had was a, a sort of a massive reassertion of our own will at this point. And even the language being used, you know, this is a battle, we've got to bring this thing <laughs> under control, et cetera, et cetera, spoke very much to the, the modern technological mentality. Mm. And it seemed to me, at least, to reflect sort of like a Nietzschean ethic, almost like, you know, the only thing that matters is your physical life instead of sort of deeper metaphysical values that people might have. It was almost as if like people didn't care about any of that. It was you need to save grandma or something like that. Life was the only thing. Physical life was the only thing that seemed to matter to these people, which kind of flies in the face of uh, a lot of you know historical values that people actually value. Yes, I think it exposed the fact that we don't really have a broadly agreed moral framework mm. for, for thinking about a hierarchy of goods, that's to put it in a rather mm. dry way. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, one of the saddest photos I remember seeing during the time of the pandemic was the funeral of a little 10-year-old Muslim boy mm. who died in Britain of COVID. Mm. And he died alone in a hospital. Mm. His parents were not allowed to be with him because he was isolated because of COVID. They were not even allowed to go to his funeral. Mm. The funeral was just a picture of him, the coffin bearers, and the imam at the funeral. And it was the bleakest picture mm. that I'd seen for a long time. And I remember thinking, what sort of a society is it that allows a 10-year-old child to die on their own? Mm. That is not a great testimony mm. to our society. The second thing that, that I think connects to what you've just said, Jimmy, is I was always struck by the phrase the experts say it was used again and again and again in justifying various uh, social policies. But every time the phrase the experts say was used, it was referring to a subset of the medical establishment. Mm. Uh, it was never a moral philosopher or a theologian <laughs> that was being called upon. And I, I said to the students in class at the time, this is fascinating because when you, when you step back and think about it, a doctor, a medical expert can tell you how to save a life, mm -hmm. but he or she cannot tell you why a life is worth saving unless they step outside of the immediate technical issue of saving the life and start to think in more metaphysical or even theological terms. Mm. And it struck me that, if you like, technique had become our metaphysics mm. during the time of the pandemic, that 
it was self-evident that if we could save lives, we should save lives, all lives, whatever the social cost elsewhere, it was the only thing we should do. And that's not to say, again, that any of the decisions made were necessarily wrong, but it is to say it would have been nice if those decisions had been, had emerged out of a broader network of expertise discussion mm. uh, than, than seemed to be the case. Yeah, it was interesting that essentially they tried to answer questions about what we ought to do with what is. You know, they were using yeah. facts to answer moral questions, essentially. Yeah. Should we keep grandma locked up or something like that? That I never really thought of it that way before. That's a very frightening point if you think about it. Yeah. It leads to a sort of, I think, what Michel Foucault, the French uh, post-structuralist thing called sort of biopolitics, where, <laughs> where science and biology get sort of recruited for a certain kind of politics. I think we'll be thinking about the pandemic for years to come. I think it throws up uh, not only a lot of human tragedy with the people who died, of course, but also a lot of fascinating questions for social philosophy. Hmm. Well, that makes me think about something that you wrote about in, uh, I think it was chapter two or something like that, but how you go back to your grandfather and you talk about job satisfaction. <laughs> and you were like, you know, if you asked him if he, he was satisfied with his job, he would have said, yes, like yeah. I can provide for my family and so on. If you ask somebody modern whether or not they're satisfied with their job and it's about sort of like the psychological satisfaction that we derive in terms of identity or something like that, or self-actualization or whatever, you know, pop psych term you want to use. That seems to me like uh, very personal and subjective. So it's almost as if because that's so subjective now, the only thing we can agree on is sort of like this biological reality of whether or not you're alive or dead. And it's we sort of, I don't know, equate everybody at that level rather than sort of thinking about the deeper, you know, or I guess the broader community or civilization or something like that. Yeah, I think it comes down to a shift in how we understand ourselves as human beings. Do we understand mm -hmm. ourselves primarily in terms of our obligations towards others? Or do we understand ourselves primarily in terms of our, our obligations towards ourselves? Uh, that could be one way of looking at it. And I think you know, when you, I joke with students in class, but it, it's only half a joke, I suppose. It's, you know, the, the American Declaration of Independence, uh, life and liberty, yep, I'm on board with those. Pursuit of happiness. In the long run, that has proved an utterly disastrous principle to build society on because it works when you think that human beings share a common human nature and mm. what makes Jimmy Song happy is going to be compatible with and perhaps reinforce what makes Carl Truman happy when we're mm. all point, you know, we're all aiming in the same direction. Once you end up with the kind of world you've just described where really it, it mm. degenerates into a sort of radical individual subjectivism, the pursuit mm. of happiness as a right becomes a right to plunge the world into chaos at that mm. point, because you have no right to stand in the way of my happiness, as long as my happiness is not extinguishing your physical life. So, okay, we're not going to allow serial killers to pursue happiness in the way they <laughs> wish to pursue happiness. But pretty much everybody else can do it in whatever way they want. And then that raises serious questions about, well, can a society built on that principle be remotely stable and have a long-term future it's 
it's hard to see how if everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes, we can really have a long-term vision for what society can and should be. Yeah, it's interesting because when you were saying, well, we, we don't allow serial killers, we also don't allow smokers, right? Like it's um, <laughs> you know, secondhand smoke or whatever. Yes. And now it's if you have like certain beliefs that are not kosher within that particular thing, you're, you're not allowed to express it either. It seems to become more a, of a prohibition yeah. against others kind of you know, ethic that emerges in that sort of, you know, once you make that a priority. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, uh, you know, if you have a society where in theory, everybody can do their own thing, whatever they, way they want, it's obvious that it isn't going to be a coherent long-term thing. So you have mm -hmm. to have somebody to referee it. You can't have mm -hmm. a society where trans people can be fully affirmed, where you mm -hmm. also have people, you know, rad certain radical feminists, traditional Christians, mm -hmm. whatever, deny the reality of turn around and say, you can't be a man who, who is now a woman. That's not possible. Mm -hmm. Those views are incompatible. Somebody has to referee that. So what's mm -hmm. emerging in the West at the moment is that's being refereed in part by governments through legislation, mm -hmm. but perhaps more worryingly, it's being refereed through what the, the conservative journalist Rod Dreher refers to as soft totalitarianism, <laughs> which is where large corporations that traditionally were seen as standing on the conservative side of things have sort of flipped and are now mm -hmm. standing on the progressive side of things and in some cases working quite hard to, to marginalize and, and neutralize uh, conservative voices. I was giving a lecture on Rousseau, of all things, about 18 months <laughs> ago. And somebody, I, I get stalked by a few people, <laughs> somebody put a complaint into YouTube saying that the lecture was homophobic or something. It was not. I didn't even mention <laughs> LGBTQ <laughs> issues in the lecture. And that was enough to get the live stream shut down while YouTube investigated. So it was a case of, you know, I was guilty until proven innocent when they did restore mm -hmm. the live feed, I believe, the live stream, I believe. But that's a good mm -hmm. example of how, yeah, when you have something like YouTube as a platform mm -hmm. for speech, then mm -hmm. it's not the government uh, policing uh, your speech on YouTube. It's whoever's in charge of YouTube. And so I think mm -hmm. we're seeing, you know, emerging at this soft totalitarianism that that Rod Dreher has, uh, has pointed to fairly consistently over the last three or four years. Yeah, and I think you're right in even more ways than you might think, in the sense that, at least from my perspective, all of the subsidization and fiat money printing and all of the money flowing towards these corporations, they're essentially incentivized to play nice with the government and do what they say, because so much of their money now comes through financialization and through you know, meeting the needs of the money printer rather than the customer. So yeah. you get situations like Twitter where, you know, they would rather go and suppress, you know, conservative voices because, you know, they're, these users aren't the ones paying them. The ones paying them are the advertisers and the advertising money comes from commercial loans, which are printed out of nothing. <laughs> so ultimately it comes out of, you know, the government's yeah. largesse, which of course is stolen from everybody else. But <laughs> in a sense, it's totalitarian yeah. in the sense that everyone, all of these things are sort of like tentacles of the same organism. Yeah, yeah. And it would be very interesting on that front. Mm 
to try to make, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I clever enough. But if, if the money tracks back to the government, then there has to be a case for trying to argue that, say, YouTube or Twitter, that these are public accommodations. And therefore, mm -hmm. the First Amendment applies. And therefore, <laughs> censorship is wrong and bad. Because, of course, mm -hmm. at the moment, the plea is very much, hey, we're not the government. The First Amendment mm -hmm. doesn't apply. Well, mm -hmm. if you could make a case that actually you are dependent upon government subsidies, then mm. the case can be made. You are a public accommodation and therefore the First Amendment does apply. Mm. Well, I guess my reply to that would be, I think, at least on the progressive side of the spectrum, the, the reply is almost like that reality is almost you know a, a non-issue because in a sense, it's much more about power and whether what, what you can enforce. And, you know, it's free speech for me, but not for thee. And that that's something that I kind of got out of your book with respect to, you know, how you have different rules for different groups of yeah. people. Yeah. And this seems to be applying definitely in politics where if a black person says something or a white person says something or even a Democrat says something versus a Republican says something, it's treated completely differently. And yeah. there, there isn't a consistent rule base anymore. Yeah. I think that what, what we see is I mean, Herbert Marcuse, the mm -hmm. Frankfurt School theorist, uh, who really, mm -hmm. his, his greatest writing was probably in the, in the 40s and 50s, but mm -hmm. he really becomes, I think, a key influential figure in the 60s, particularly with the 1968 student rebellions. Mm -hmm. uh, Marcuse is the man who really singles out freedom of speech as, as effectively intolerant. He says, you know, the problem mm -hmm. with freedom of speech is it gives platform for, we would say, bigotry, hatred, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. It's a contract. Freedom mm -hmm. of speech is a false freedom. But actually, we need to close this down because it's just an excuse, a platform for, for hatred. And I think that the Marcuse, even though we've got a rising generation of young people who probably never even heard of Marcuse, <laughs> uh, Marcuse's thinking is becoming more influential on the grounds that less and less, it seems to me, young people think that freedom of speech is a good thing. Hmm. Uh, and of course, again, we saw that, we've seen that leverage somewhat during the time of COVID because disinformation, etc., <laughs> became policed in some interesting ways uh, that we'd not seen in the past. So mm -hmm. yeah, but I think the, the question of if you adopt a sort of critical theoretical approach to freedom of speech, then freedom of speech just becomes an ideological way of maintaining the unjust status quo. And freedom of speech itself needs to be crushed in order to lead to, to justice. And your comment about, you know, if it's a white person, if it's a person of color, et cetera, et cetera, says it, I think it goes to the, the Marcusean idea that, you know, let's, you know, don't worry about what's being said. Let's look at who's saying it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not what, it's who. And mm. I think that is increasingly the mentality uh, today. Though I've always, yeah, I, I'm glad to be old enough not to have to care too much about this. I shall be, you know, <laughs> there's a limit to what can be done to me now. And I always, mm. I love the, I, I was not a big fan of the Duke of Edinburgh, but mm. the Duke of Edinburgh, there are a few things he said that, that have stuck with me. And one piece of wisdom, he was once asked, you know, how do you deal with the gutter press? How do you deal with the tabloids when they come after you? And he said, my motto is this. He said, I never apologize and I never explain. <laughs> and I think that is not a bad policy when it comes to things said on Twitter and Facebook and that. Do not empower these people by responding. <laughs>
carry on regardless. <laughs> mm, that's excellent advice. I know we don't have that much time left, so I want to make sure we get to this. I love how you sort of like speculate on the future on sort of where things are coming to a head with the trans issue and things yeah. like that. And you see various incentives at play and you're just sort of gaming it out. And you conclude basically that the T part of this coalition is going to blow it up in many ways. Can you explain that yeah. uh, a little bit for my audience? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we miss, because we're so used to hearing about the LGBTQ community, one of the things we miss is that the L and the G and even the B assume certain things that the T denies. Uh, well, first of all, we could make a general comment say the L, the G, and the B uh, predicated on sexual desire in a way that the T isn't. The T is about, I would say, it's about comfort or discomfort with the body. It's about a disconnect, a perceived disconnect between who I am inside and my physical body. It's not necessarily about sexual desire. Mm. Uh, secondly, the T denies, the T and the Q, the, the trans and the queer elements of that coalition, deny the, the importance of biology. They deny mm. the importance of the sex binary between male and female. Mm. And the L, the G, and the B assume that. And we see that, for example, in radical feminism that rejects the idea that trans women are really women. The, mm. the, the bust-ups within feminism on that point are interesting. J.K. Rowling would be a good example of a feminist who's spoken up on that. Um, we also see it within the more specifically gay and lesbian community. Andrew Sullivan, the gay journalist, has been pilloried for saying that he does not find women who have transitioned to being men to be sexually attractive. Uh, and that mm. has led to accusations that he's a transphobe. In Britain, just in the last couple of weeks, a lesbian feminist group have been expelled from pride mm. because they refuse to acknowledge that trans women are real women. Even among trans people, there are debates about this. Uh, Debbie Hayton, who is a man who's transitioned to being a woman, a well-respected journalist in the United Kingdom. Debbie Hayton describes, describes herself as a trans woman, but denies that trans women, women are real women. So the, the T is fascinating because of the, the way biology is denied there and that sets it at odds both even within its own internal community and within other elements of of the alliance so i think the alliance will is falling apart lesbians being kicked out of pride uh, hmm. it's falling apart it was only ever strong because it faced what it considered to be a strong and powerful enemy white male heterosexuality as normative I think as now white heteronormativity has become perceived to be so weak, the force keeping the alliance together has weakened and the alliance itself has started uh, to crumble. I also think the T will collapse under its own weight eventually because we're already seeing the emergence of a lot of detransitioner narratives, people who had their lives and their bodies wrecked when they were younger <clears throat> because they went through transition. Just last week, a, a woman, I can't remember where, which country she's in, but I read online a story in a newspaper. She is suing the doctor who put her on trans treatment after one consultation as a young woman. Mm. I think because transitioning does not solve the problem of which 
transgenderism is a presenting symptom. We're going to see lots and lots of detransitioner narratives emerging that will weaken it. And we'll see people being sued over mm. having given bad advice on this. Mm. On the other hand, since I've written the book, I've also begun to realize that the transgender issue is not simply an issue of it, it doesn't simply fit into the LGBTQ plus narrative. It does fit mm. into that, but it's also part of the transhumanist narrative, mm. the basic transcending of what it means to be a human, the basic transcending of bodily limits, whether mm. it's in terms of mortality or physical limitations. So I think that the big thing to watch as we move into the future, not so much the transgender issue, I think that will resolve itself within the next 30, 40, 50 years, I think the next wave of this identity issue will be transhumanism, meshing human beings, potentially with animals, potentially with computers. This weekend, Cambridge University announced that one of its professors has generated a mouse embryo with a brain and a beating heart without the use of a sperm or an egg from a mouse. It's done it from stem cells. Wow. That's got to be coming the human way at some point. So I think the thing to watch as we move into the future is, is where is transhumanism going to take us? Hmm. So the question isn't what is a woman, it's what is being a human? Absolutely. That is a great way of putting it. I think we will come to a, a point in the next generation where what is a human will hmm. be a confusing question. If it isn't so already, it would be interesting hmm. to ask, you know, candidates for the Supreme Courts of the United <laughs> States, you know, what is a human and, and see if they have to defer to biologists. <laughs> it would be interesting. But I think, yes, as we're moving uh, into the transhumanist realm, it hmm. will be fascinating. Which, and in some ways, I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, it's good to be in my mid-50s because I'm not going to live to see the nightmare that this will unleash on society. My, my grandchild, unfortunately, probably will be around to see some of it. I hope it will not be too cataclysmic. Well, so, okay, so maybe that's a good place to go. What do you say to the people that want to have a little hope, right? To the, <laughs> the people that are younger, I guess. Yeah. What's the hope for this generation? How does this turn around? Or yeah. how do we get meaning out of essentially a very meaningless metaphysic? Yeah, I think uh, the two things. I think one, recapture the real. Mm. How does one do that? I think one does that by, first of all, by real community. Bottom line is we're embodied creatures. The people and the things that are most important to us, I think, are the people. You know, we noticed this in COVID when students went home and, and had to sit and do their lessons online. They hated it. They hated it for a variety of reasons. And one of them was it became clear that college isn't just learning stuff. It's who you sit next to in the classroom. It's who you share a dorm with. It's who you hang around with in the evening. It's whether you ever get to go to a professor's house for a meal. So I would say, even if the national scene is bleak, build community where you're placed. Learn to love the place where you are. Learn to love the people, the real people that you interact with. Learn to wean yourself off your technological gadgets. Don't throw them away, but make them serve you. Don't serve them. Let you make your real reality something into which they have to fit, something rather than something they themselves uh, determine. And I think there's, 
I mean, even now there are reports that young people to some extent are beginning to turn away from social media because they're recapturing what it means to have real friends and real community. So I would say, don't despair. Go for the real community. Everybody lives somewhere. Everybody lives near somebody. Everybody is related to somebody. Recapture real friendship. And secondly, play the long game. Uh, we're not going to turn the world around in the next week, in the next month, in the next decade. But live your life in a way that's going to leave something worthwhile for your children, your grandchildren and their children to build upon. I'm always struck by the wonders of European, medieval European architecture, the great cathedrals, Cologne Cathedral. Mm. Took over 500 years, took 600 years to build Cologne Cathedral. The person who started building Cologne Cathedral knew on day one that they were never going to enjoy sitting in Cologne Cathedral and <laughs> admiring it as a completed work. And yet they still thought it was worthwhile. Uh, we need to think long term. We need to be thinking about not simply, hey, what can I do today that's going to bring me most pleasure in the next 24 hours? We need to be thinking about what can I do with my life that is going to leave something beautiful for future generations to build upon. And I think if we can recapture something of that, then despair sort of disappears at that point because <laughs> despair is not focused on what I can achieve for me in my life. We're more inclined to be thinking about leaving a legacy for those who follow. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's very inspiring. And hopefully the people that are listening to this follow your advice. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Uh, well, ironically, you can find me on the web. <laughs> <laughs> I do, uh, I write each, every two weeks, I have a, an article at firstthings.com, which mm -hmm. is a conservative slash religious, uh, politi politically conservative slash religious website. There are Christians, Jewish, and the occasional Muslim writer, actually. Uh, you can find mm. me sort of commenting on contemporary cultural issues there. And I also do an opinion column for World Opinions, World Magazine Opinions, if you search for that online. You can find me all over YouTube, I'm sure, if you, if you look for lectures I've given and, uh, and podcasts I've done. So Google me on YouTube. If you Google me on the web, you'll come up with all kinds of terrible things being said about me, I'm sure. <laughs> Ignore the bad stuff. It's only the really great stuff about me you want to pay attention to. Yeah, and don't use Google. Use Start Page or something yes. else. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Carl, for this lovely hour. And, uh, and yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks, Jimmy. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Dr. Carl Truman can be found on the Grove City College website. Until next time, fiat de lenda est.